My name is Lloyd Shadrach. If you're a guest, I'm one of the teaching pastors along with Rob Sweet. So you'll see Rob or I here uh, back and forth between our Brentwood and our Franklin congregations. The day after Christmas, December 26, 1925, G.K. Chesterton, Christian philosopher, writer, apologist, uh, had these words to say. He wrote, quote, people are losing the power to enjoy Christmas through identifying it with enjoyment. That sounds a little strange. Let me finish the sentence for the paragraph. When once they lose sight of the old suggestion that it is all about something, they naturally fall into blank pauses of wondering, what's it all about? You cannot suddenly be frivolous unless you believe there is serious reason for frivolity, end quote. Now, what I believe Chesterton is saying is that there is no genuine rejoicing. You know, this is a season of rejoicing, right? There's no genuine rejoicing. It's a season of enjoyment. There's no genuine enjoyment unless there is serious reason that undergirds it. And he uses the word frivolity, but we don't hear that often, but he's talking about rejoicing in joy. The reason for our joy has to have some semblance and quite frankly, a serious reason for being. In his day, he's saying, you know, the, the traditions of the day, 1926, are, are, they, they seem to have covered up the reason we can be joyful. Certainly true in our day, which is why the church for centuries has marked the weeks before Christmas in what we call the season of Advent. Advent means preparation. It's a Latin word. It means, the, it means coming. And so during the Advent season, if this is Christmas, you take the Advent season, and that season is our season of preparation, our, our season of um, uh, engaging and pondering and getting our hearts in a position to truly understand the reason for the season. Now, during this year's Advent season, we're going to be looking at four songs of Christmas. This is how we're going to do it this year at Fellowship. And we call these songs of Christmas because... They're really songs in the, in the scripture. You're gonna see today what uh, the passage we cover. It's written not in sentences, but in stanzas. It's poetic. Uh, what we're gonna look at in the next few weeks will be some of the New Testament, and, and they're truly songs themselves. Today, we're gonna hear the song of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna ask you to turn to them while I tie my shoe. Turn to Isaiah chapter seven. I know you're thinking Isaiah chapter nine, and that is our text, but we've got to have chapter 7 and 8 that sets up, that provides the context for those familiar words that uh, Laura read earlier from Isaiah chapter 9. It's the song of promise. Why do we call it a song of promise? Because Isaiah is prophesying, God is saying through Isaiah, if this is the coming of Jesus here, 700 years earlier, God is saying, I'm sending my son. Now, they didn't get that clearly, but we're going to see that that's what he speaks of in this passage. Y'all, 700 years before he came, they had to live on the promise. They had to hold the promise. 700 years. It's, a, it's the first song we're covering because it's the foundational song. I'm telling you all the rest of the songs we look at over these next few weeks are built upon this promise 
of Isaiah. If you're at chapter seven, hold there because I need to give us the historical context, okay? It is 735 BC, 735 years before Christ. The nation of Israel is divided. There is the northern kingdom, two tribes called Israel. There's the southern kingdom, or or 10 tribes called Israel. There's the southern kingdom, which are the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and that is called the kingdom of Judah. I've always been confused by this because every time you read it, you go, well, I thought the whole thing's Israel. Why is it just the northern one that calls Israel? Because this one's called Israel and this one's called Judah, okay? What I want you to note is it's a divided kingdom. Let me ask you this. Just that fact alone tells us something. Are things going well in the nation of Israel? Are, are God's people in a good place? They're divided. No, no. So you see this, just start there uh, with, the, with the sense to which the, The nation is divided. Things are not as they were meant to be. These are days of deep-seated fear, anxiety, political, military unrest. Think about it this way. There's civil war. So these two kingdoms, which are one people, want to kill each other and destroy each other. That's not a good thing. And then take all the countries around them. They're rising in power. And you know what they want to do? They want to wipe this kingdom out too. Nothing ever changes, does it, historically in a sense. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. So, you know, when you read the prophets, they prophesied primarily to the northern or the southern kingdom. Isaiah is is a prophet to to the southern kingdom, Judah. And the king at that time is a man named Ahaz. Ahaz has a major problem. There are two kings. One's the king of Israel, and the king of Israel partners with another king and decides we're going to come down here and we're going to wipe out the southern kingdom. We're going we're to put our own man in place there. We're going to destroy them. So they come against Jerusalem and besiege it. Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, recognizes he's outnumbered. It's two against one. They are terrified. Ahaz and the people. I want you to look in chapter 7 how God and Isaiah describes the people at this time. If you're in Isaiah 7, I just want you to pick up there in verse Two, when it was reported to the house of David, to Ahaz of Judah, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. The, uh, you know, these two kings have come down and, and are besieging Jerusalem. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Talk about poetic. They're terrified. They're shaking like trees shaking in the wind. It's at this dark hour that Isaiah is sent by God, and we pick that up in verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Here's God's promise to Ahaz. And say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear. And do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. Stop right there. So God takes these two kings that Ahab is terrified of and shaking and calls them two smoldering firebrands. When, When something is smoldering, it's on its way out. If I blew out that candle right now, there would be a little glow on the tip and it would be there for a moment and gone. And so God says to Ahaz, calm down. Don't fear, these two powerful kings are smoldering. They're about to be out. And indeed, God puts them out in the few, just in a few years from this promise. 
Now, he goes on, I want you to just, we're not gonna cover the whole thing, but I want you to notice uh, what the kings, the two kings say about Ahaz and Judah, verse six. They are saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, excuse me, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. We're gonna wipe these guys out. We're gonna put our own king in. God's promise, verse seven, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. So they say, we're coming to get you. We're gonna destroy you, and we're gonna put up our own king. God says to Ahaz, what they're saying will not stand, meaning that's not gonna happen. That, what they're saying is not gonna come to pass. Now, what is that? That's God's promise to Ahaz. Ahaz had a choice to make now. Will I trust God's promise or will I figure a way out of this thing? Which do you think Ahaz chose? If you know the story, you know, but we can almost guess on this one. Which would he choose? I'm gonna trust what God said Okay, I'm gonna trust God. Or I'm gonna figure a way out of this because we're in deep trouble. Which one did he choose? He chose his own way. He chose what I would choose. (laughs) He chose what you and I often choose. I got a real problem. This is not fake, this is real. My kingdom's under siege. They got to kill me and destroy this and I need to figure a way out. I'm gonna tell you, he, he actually did make a way out, instead of trusting God's promise, he cut a deal. It's brilliant. You got two against one. You got this country surrounding uh, the, the, both kingdoms named Assyria that's rising in power. And by golly, would, can you believe it? Ahaz cut a deal with Assyria. And it's as if he says to these two kings that are coming to get him, oh gosh, you guys got me. Wait, I've cut a deal with Assyria, bigger than all three of us put together. Assyria is now on my side. And you know, and, and, and you gotta believe he did it with, with, with the intentions of securing his future, right? I mean, he did it to save his kingdom. What's the problem? What's the problem with what he did? Did he trust God or did he make his own way? Y'all, he made his own way out of this predicament. It was human genius, really. I mean, it was like, whoa, he pulled that off. The problem is human genius, uh, our, our best wisdom and effort, is never a substitute for simple faith in God. It, it wasn't in 735 BC, and I'm just gonna say to us today, it's not a substitute today. Our wisdom and ingenuity is no substitute for simple faith in the promise of God. Here's where I believe this theology of Christmas rises up and quite frankly becomes a theology of life. This is where I'm going. This is bigger than Christmas. Uh, This is a theology of life. Some of you are facing two kings today that you weren't facing a year ago. Well, Lord, what do you mean? Well, I mean this. I mean, some of you are facing physical issues in your life, medical, physical issues that you weren't facing a year ago, and quite frankly, they're, they're hurting, and they're, they, they're on, they could destroy you. Some of you are facing issues that are life and death. That's a fact. Some of us in the room are facing 
relational challenges and issues uh, that are, you know, they're just like Gordian knots and they're weighing upon you, they're, they're pressing upon you and they're, out, they're, they're in a way out to destroy your peace and your rest. I, I, don't know how you live the, I don't know how you live life on the planet without having some of those somewhere. Sometimes they're worse at, at, at other times, but we all have them. Uh, some, some of you have two kings facing you. They're at the breach, they're trying to come in and, and it's uh, financial, maybe vocational. And it would be this, you truly have some financial issues and some of them are things you thought I'd never be here. I didn't think I'd ever be at this place and yet here I am and here we are and we could lose it all. It might be a lawsuit, it might be a decision you made, a poor choice. It's just life, you know, that came against you. That's a fact, two kings out to crush you. Some are facing emotional battles, emotional illness as real as physical illness and quite frankly, it's crushing you and you don't see a way out. I could put the two kings in the category of disappointments, hurts, misunderstandings, just unjust things, bad things happening to good people. These are kings that come against us. And in the face of these things, each one of us right now, uh, we really do have a choice. And I I don't ever want to oversimplify the Christian faith because quite frankly, everything's great to me. It gets really complicated. But there is some simplicity to this. And that is we always have the choice, always have this choice. Will I trust God or will I trust myself? That's, this is kind of the, the, the choices of life, isn't it? And anything we face, will I trust God or will I trust myself? Will I make my own way out? Ahaz chose, I'm gonna figure this out. He cut the deal with the Assyrians. And the question is, will you and I cut a deal, honestly, or will we trust God? And I know some of you are thinking, well, Lloyd, you know, we got to do something. What are you just saying? Trust God. What do you do when you, how do you trust God? I don't know the answer for your particular situation. I can tell you this. Um, Surely it starts with, oh, God, I need you to do this. So surely it begins with a a recognition, I need you, God. And then from there, I, I go, the spirit of God will lead you and guide you. But it surely begins there, which Ahaz did not do. But I can so identify with Ahaz, and I want to make this as practical as I can and real, quite frankly. You know, we go, well, you know, I'd have done better than Ahaz. I don't know that you would have. I don't know why I wouldn't have. Do you remember when the the mega millions was at $1.6 billion? You remember that about a month ago? You know, not that I track this stuff, but it was at $1.6 billion, the largest in the world ever. Um, And do you know that one person won that? One person won won it, you guys, that person remains anonymous. And I'm just waiting for someone in our body to say, you know, I didn't tell everybody, but I want you to know, Lloyd, it was me. No, it's not me, but um, by the way, you had to pay all those taxes, so it's only 600 million, so it's not a big deal. But $600 million you get, you know, think about this. I want you to think if you were in a position, truly, and, and some, some of us get this way in Williamson County, and certainly our brothers, we know people that can get their brothers and sisters, but you're at a place where you're financially in a bind. It may be you, you, know, you had a lawsuit, you had a made bad decision, investment went poorly, job, you know, underemployed for time, but things are terrible, and you are in a financial strait such that you could lose your home. Literally, you lose your home. Uh, you're going to lose your insurance. You know, you're going to lose a lot. Real financial difficulty. And you were given a choice, truly. And you were given the choice of, here, you can have the winning ticket for the $1.6 billion lot, mega lottery. You can have it. Or you can trust God. And, and some of you are going, well, I can 
I'll trust God that he gave me the $1.6 million ticket. And I go, no, 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 this is that, you're breaking the illustration down. This is, you got to, you get to choose one or the other. And, and in all seriousness, you know, I know it's a silly illustration in a sense, but the truth is, you get that $1.6 billion lottery ticket and you cash that in, you are set financially and, and the next several generations of your family, quite frankly, could be, would be set with the, with the real money, real problem solved. If you choose to trust God, there's no guarantee you're gonna have your house next month. God didn't, I don't know that God would say to you, I'm gonna bring you through this and save your house, save your marriage. I, I, so you trust the promise of God. You go, well, what do I get out of that? Well, you get God. Now, you know, that you, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, Lloyd. That's easy for you to say, but you know, I, I believe it's true. And, and yet we all kind of go, I know, but I need money to pay my bills. I don't need just, but you get God. You get his promises, his promises such that he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Such that he promises, I cause all things to work together for good to those who love me who are called according to my purpose. His promise that he will use whatever happens for your good and his glory. See, these are the promises of God we get. It's not necessarily you get the lottery ticket or you get the money, but you get God himself, which is what we were made for. And I use that illustration to only say this. Uh, it's not easy, is it? It's not easy when the, when, when, when the tangible things right in front of you and, 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 and God says, believe my promise. Okay, well, give me a little more than the promise. Give me a down payment, you know, whatever. Believe it or not, he did. He gave us the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit's called earnest money. So, you know, it's kind of like God said, well, I did give you a down payment. I put my spirit within you to enable you to trust me. But Rob or I would never want you to go, well, Lloyd, if you make it that simple, trust, you know, I either trust God or I make my way and it's that easy. It's not easy as I say that. Uh, it's terrifying, uh, quite frankly, to trust God. Assyria took care of Ahaz's problem, okay? I want you to know that. Uh, the Assyrians came along, northern kingdom, no problem for the Assyrians. But you know what the problem was? What did the Assyrians do next? took care of the southern kingdom. <laughs> so in, in principle, what Ahaz trusted to deliver him, in fact, destroyed him. Well, now we're really talking about a theology of life and not just Christmas, aren't we? What Ahaz trusted to deliver him actually destroyed him. And I certainly think we could say in principle, whatever you and I trust to deliver us, that's apart from God, okay, I'm gonna trust this, apart from God, actually destroys us. I could say it another way, more attuned to our own day, what they thought would set them free. See, they thought that would give them freedom. You know, we're, we're free from the tyranny of the northern kingdom. No, what they thought would bring them freedom actually did what to them? It put them in bondage. See, the Assyrians put them in bondage. I could say it another way, what they thought would satisfy the deepest longings and the desires of their heart. Because listen, to not be run over by the northern kingdom, put under their thumb, that's, to not want that is good. That's what, we weren't made to be under bondage. We weren't made to, you know, for scarcity. We weren't made for that. We were made for fullness of life with God. So that was a good longing. But what they chose to satisfy that longing, okay, that was not God, in effect left them longing unsatisfied, empty, and bankrupt. And I say that to say it remains true today. Now, with that said, look at chapter eight, verse 22. It is a one paragraph, one sentence summary of what it cost Judah to choose Assyria. 
It says, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. What did they get by trusting Assyria? Here's what they got. They got darkness, anguish, gloom, and distress. There you go. Why did they get that? Because they will look to the earth. Because when you don't trust God, you got to look somewhere. And what we do is we'll look to the earth. We'll look to humanity for the best solution I can find to this problem, right? I'm going to use my best resource. I'm going to get the smartest people, whatever you want to do. But you look horizontally, refusing to look vertically to trust God. And when you and I do that, we look to the earth, you know, to the solutions. That means not looking to God. So getting what I want, you know, I I want something. And if I get what I want by looking to the earth and refusing to trust God, if I get what I want, what I want actually gives me darkness. And when I, I, let's just say I gain financial security. I figured out, I land the lottery, I land the investment. I've figured out our financial future, honey. It's secure. If I figure that out apart from trusting God, what this tells me is what you actually get is gloom. If I make a name for myself, you know, in, in the good sense of we were made for significance, we were made to be productive and to count. And to, you know, if, if I do that, but I do it apart from God, what do I get? Well, according to Isaiah, what you really get is darkness, more darkness. And so now this is what they got. And in the midst of the mess of their own making, right? In the mess of their own making, here comes the song of promise. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah speaks to the nation. But there will be no more gloom. Oh, that's verse 22. Exactly. For her who was in anguish. That's verse 22. Exactly. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness, that's verse 22, precisely, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. You know, when the light shines upon them and they are living in darkness, understand this is not literal darkness and light. We know this is speaking of Jesus because Matthew, when he begins to recount the birth of Jesus, Matthew 4, you can look at it later, he quotes Isaiah 9 and attributes this coming light to the baby Jesus, okay? So we know he's speaking of Jesus. The darkness is not literal, you all. It's spiritual. It's much worse than literal darkness. What do you mean spiritual darkness? Well, the darkness is, think about their choices and what they made. The darkness is sin and what sin does. That's the darkness of our heart. It's the darkness of guilt. We do something wrong. We feel guilty. That's actually a gift to feel guilty to know we've done something wrong. But if we stay in that guilt, guilt will crush you. And often what we'll do is it's, we'll take the darkness of guilt and it becomes the deeper darkness of shame. You've done something wrong, but you move from I did something wrong to the shame of I'm a mistake. I'm a nothing. The darkness that this is speaking of is the darkness of hopelessness. 
It's the darkness that you and I come to when we live separated from God. Ultimately, nothing satisfies, nothing answers, and we get to the place of nothing ever will. That's hopelessness. This is the sin. This is the darkness that Isaiah is describing. It's the darkness of injustice. You know, injustice happens in this world, you all. It's the darkness of oppression. It's the darkness of brokenness. It's the darkness of evil. It's the darkness of wanting the wrong things. That's darkness. We want the wrong things and we can't change our wants. That's a darkness that's hopeless. God says something in verse four that's very interesting because when Jesus came, go back to the, to the manger, go back and you go, wow, the son of God came and they missed it. Most everyone, they all missed it. They didn't see the light. Come to our day. We're celebrating in this season the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of God. Quite frankly, most people will miss it, you understand, even in Williamson County. They won't be rooted in the seriousness of the incarnation. Why do most people miss it? Well, one reason, interestingly, verse 4, it says, uh, for you, this is the, ba- the, 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 the child to come, the Messiah, says, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. It's gonna be just like the battle of Midian. And I think this tells us in part why we miss it. The battle of Midian takes us back to Judges 7. Book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own day. I just happened to be reading it in my own devotions right now. I just finished it and it's just like crazy dark, crazy dark. Like you're going, what the heck happened? This is, this is weirdo dark. And uh, in those days, God would raise up judges to deliver the nation. Then they would get back into the grime, and then he'd raise up someone else. Now, in the days of Midian, the Midianites would come in, and every time Israel would harvest their food, it's like when all the grapes got picked, the Midians came in and took it. It's not like they went in and picked it. No, they let the Israelites pick it all, harvest it all, and then they would come in and take it. It's literally what would happen. And so God raised up someone to, 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 you know, to punch the Midianites back, basically. And so what's interesting is that he chose a farmer, not a warrior, This farmer was of the least tribe, the least tribe of the 12. And this farmer was the youngest in his tribe. In other words, this man was a least likely candidate to deliver Israel. You know his name? Gideon, Gideon. This is Gideon. And and by the way, think about it too. When he delivered the Midianites, he was not only the least likely person, but it was done in the most least likely way? Can we say that? Do you remember the story? You're talking about 135,000 Midianites, okay? Gideon's able to assemble 32,000 Jews. 135,000 against 35,000. God says, you have too many. It's kind of like, what? He has too many or I have too many? You know, you have too many. And so, you know, he says, anybody that's afraid gets to go home. 22,000 leave. He's left with 10,000. So now it's 135,000 against 10,000. God says, you have too many. Wait, wait, he has even more now than I am. God says, you have too many. So they drink the water. What does Gideon end up with? What's the number? 300, 300, 300 against 135,000. This is stupid. This is crazy. This is foolish. Uh, this is against all odds. Uh, this, is, this isn't gonna happen. Now we're ready for the promise. For the people live in a great darkness. Paul's going to call it the darkness of the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places that hold men bondage, the devil and his minions. I mean, this is a massive darkness. 
What's God's solution? Look at verse six. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. No end to his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. This is an eternal king for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And, and there's a sense to which truly you would say, we got a major battle here. And God says, I'm gonna send a baby. You're gonna have a, you're gonna have a child born. That, that's shocking in and of itself. What's more shocking is when you read it and the promise, and I'm sure they did as well, they said, wait, these words can only describe God. This description of the baby means that this baby's God. Wait a minute, but we're talking about a baby that's born of a woman, so that means this baby's a human being. Now, we are so marinated in this story that we can't separate ourselves and go, this is totally absurd. But to the Jew... To the Jew, the people of God in this day, and they hear this, and, and, and it's going through their minds. I don't, you know, they, they don't quite get it, but to say that a holy God becomes a dirty human being, I'm telling you, they could not get this through their heads. I mean, it's quite frankly, neither could you and I, apart from the Spirit of God. You'd never get there. We couldn't get there. The incarnation, many theologians will quote, I, I've read, would say, you know, the, the greatest miracle. You know, they're all amazing, but it's probably not the resurrection. It's more the incarnation. The incarnation. You talk about God taking on human flesh. How, how would that happen? How can a baby be God and human? Well, he had to be God because the human dilemma is we have offended a holy God. This God is holy and infinitely holy. Therefore, the penalty paid must be an infinite payment. That's why the bulls and goats and sheep covered over sin but didn't remove it because they're bulls and goats and sheep. So, so our solution must be, a, must be God. Well, our solution also must be human because bulls and goats and sheep did not sin against God. Human beings did. Therefore, the price to be paid must be paid by a human being. And so, and so the, the ultimate sacrifice must be both God and human. And there is no way eternally in the universe that any of us can grasp that unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to believe it. You know, we kind of just believe it. But don't you understand why it's so hard for people to believe it? Because it's like, no way. Wait, 300 are going to defeat 135,000 Midianites? No way. And thus we land in Isaiah at the gravity and seriousness of the incarnation. And we start here because I want and we want the weight of that, the mystery of it, the incomprehensibility of it to be the ground from which we rejoice. There's frivolity. 
because God has come in the God-man Jesus to redeem us. If I said to you, that candle, see that little flame right there? That little flame is actually gonna be brighter than the sun. You'd look at me and go, I don't think so. It's the same in the manger, isn't it? That baby. That baby's gonna deliver the world from its darkness. And most said, mm, I don't think so. But you and I as the people of God, what would we say? Yes. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. We don't want to leave without just a pause of application. I mean, this is information, but it's no more than information if it doesn't affect our choices in life. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, let me ask the band to come out because we're going to have a song in a moment. Uh, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye right now the two kings that are against you right now. You may have 10. Pick the two. What's the issue in your life that, that you either trust God with or you figure your way out? What's that issue knocking at the breach of the door? of your life that's thrown you in turmoil, that's out to hurt you, crush you. I want you to name it. Just name it to yourself. And I want to put before you what Ahaz had before him and every believer in the room has before them. Every person, quite frankly. With that, are you going to trust God or are you going to make your way out of it? I know that's a simple choice and I know it's a difficult choice. But I'm going to ask you in these moments to simply talk to God. And it's not an inappropriate prayer to say, God, I can't trust you. Help me. That in and of itself is trusting God. You have that conversation with him now. Let's stand together. I want you to stand up. We're going to stand because we're going to have a song sung over us. Now, during this series, we're looking at four songs of Christmas. Carl and team have conspired to write an original song for every text we teach. And this first one, Carl and Chad Cates, Tony Wood wrote, I have just taught, you know, quickly Isaiah the, the song of promise. I, I've just taught it, spoke it. I think, you know, some took notes and you get it. But isn't it interesting that God has given us song and music that oftentimes will go past what is spoken and go into our heart in a way that just my words won't? This is the gift of music and song. And so I only want you to listen. I want you to see the words on the screen. And as they sing 
Isaiah 9, the song of promise. May God's spirit implant the truth of it deeper and deeper into our whole heart. For those who have walked in the deepest of shadows, God's purest light has now come. For hearts that so long have felt frozen at midnight, long last the new day has dawned. Heavenly Father, may this song of promise move beyond our intellect, pierce our hearts, convict by your Spirit. 
Let us choose trust as people of promise. We ask in Christ's name, amen.